to anybody that's working now, it might be helpful. You know, the, the job market is good now, but it might be a good sort of mental exercise to consider. What would you do if you lost your job, if your income was shut off tomorrow? Uh, Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. What's up, guys, and welcome to another episode of The Fi Show. Today, Justin and I have Rob from Getting Canned. And what his blog is all about is about how to handle getting fired. And I think he did it in one of the most interesting ways possible. What do you think, Justin? Yeah, this is a, a really interesting thing because it's not like he did it on purpose. You know, he just found out he was getting fired and kind of had to deal with it. But he dealt with it in a pretty cool way, even though it was at one of the worst times in American history to be fired right during the Great Recession. Yeah, I mean, he was sitting there for quite a while just trying to figure it out, trying to get a job. And where he ended up is probably never where he would have imagined. But Justin, let's not ruin it. Let's bring Rob into the show. This is my creation that started off sort of as just as a as a hobby to you know test out blogging because I've been learning about it. But the idea came from recently I lost my job a few months ago. This is back in around April or so, and this was after working at a company for about four years. And at the time, I w- you know a few months prior to it happening, I was put on a performance improvement plan, which if you know anything about those, it's kind of the corporate way of saying like you're probably going to be heading out the door soon. But yeah, so the the idea behind the blog was just to sort of create a space where at the point in time, like I don't think there's a lot of resources out there for people that have lost their job online. It's from like a blogging perspective. So I thought this would be a chance to create a blog that could be sort of a resource for people that have lost their job and also sort of a place to have a little bit of humor, cathartic humor about the experience of losing your job. It's also a place to provide some tips and tricks for how to handle job loss and, and things that you should be mindful of when the job loss happens. So something that I like you have on your site is called the getting fired checklist. So this is basically all the things you need to do when you know you're getting fired, when that, I would say, terrible thing is about to happen, but maybe you could put a more positive spin on this. The, the way that it typically happens is companies want to cover their butts. So when they, you know, the performance improvement plan is kind of, I guess it's sort of a euphemism that puts a positive spin on it. Like they, they position it as being a, as a, a great thing to get you improve your performance, get you back on track if you sort of veered off in the wrong direction. But really what they're doing is sort of getting their ducks in a row. So they've decided at some point that you're not right for their team and they want to get you out the door. And so they're getting their ducks in the row so they can fire you with, without having to worry about repercussions. But I think that the positive way that you can sort of frame that is when you get the performance improvement plan, it's sort of like a countdown. So you sort of are aware that at this point in time, you've probably got either 30 or 60 days left at your company. So it's better than just losing your job you know, with no warning. So it can, I would say consider it a warning. And so you can start planning for maybe looking for another job would probably be the best thing to do because if you can line up a new job and transition, you know, now you know, it's better to do that while you're working because you've got more negotiating leverage. As far as the checklist goes, I'll talk about some of the points on here that are things that you should be mindful for when you do lose your job. So the first thing you're probably going to want to do is file for unemployment. So when you lose your job, and I think some people 
sometimes feel a little bit of shame about the idea of filing for unemployment. And I really think you shouldn't because it's something you might be aware of if you ever look at your paycheck stuff that when you get paid, you're you're paying into unemployment. So this is like an insurance that companies pay into. So uh, it's a benefit that you've paid into. And when you lose your job, you're entitled to it. So first of all, I think the first thing that you'd want to do is when you lose your job, if you are terminated, is file for unemployment. And there there are some caveats to that that you know if you up and quit if it's your choice you're you're not going to get accepted for unemployment but generally speaking the rules are fairly i mean every state is different but generally speaking as long as you're not terminated for sort of gross misconduct you're probably going to get unemployment and so on my site i actually list there's there's a site you can go to that that points you to See, every state has their own unemployment agency, and so you're going to want to go to the unemployment agency of your state to get the actual instructions. And you know, I think I should probably put the caveat that every state might have different rules, but you know, generally speaking, as long as you weren't fired for gross misconduct, you can file for that unemployment and get paid and continue to get money, which is you're going to need to live. So definitely something you should do. So beyond that, a couple other things you're going to think about are I know your listeners are investment-minded and, and focused on savings, so hopefully you've got a 401k. So if you've got a 401k, you may want to look at rolling over the 401k. And is that something that you personally did when you got fired, Rob? And what was that process, and what did it look like? So for me, yeah, I was, I was almost excited when I realized I was going to be fired because I was anxious to roll over my 401k because company administrators can – some are better than others. And so the one at my previous job – it wasn't fantastic. Like they had a quarterly fee, although uh, as far as investment choices, they were good. But I was anxious to not have to pay the quarterly fee anymore. So, so right away, as soon as I was eligible to, I I called and set up a rollover to get it to the broker of my choice. And I mean, if I if I were to put out a plug for like you know good places to go, I mean, of course I'm not a financial advisor, but the choices that are in the fire community are, are pretty good. Like there's Vanguard, there's Schwab. And there's a newcomer, which I've noticed, Cody, you've got that on your blog, but M1 Finance is a pretty good, pretty impressive robo-advisor as far as they don't have any fees. So it's, it's a place that you can have your money managed at basically no cost. So another thing in, on my list is I talk about, actually worked with an attorney to have uh, an article written on my site. So I went on Upwork. You know, you can get a lot of things done on Upwork for whatever projects you're working on. But I found a pretty good attorney that's out east. And he wrote up an article about whether or not you might have the ability to sue your employer for wrongful termination. The non-legal short version of this is like probably not. Companies are pretty smart and they generally make sure that when they do a termination that there's not going to be the possibility of firing. Unless you're in like a protected class and unless the company did something really egregious, you probably can't. But that being said, it's still something to keep in mind and potentially investigate. Rob, I want you to jump into one part of your story, which is super unique and interesting, and that's talking about geo-arbitrage, travel, and the power of cutting your expenses. So just talk about your experiences with the 2008 crisis and how all that has helped you along the way. Yeah, definitely. And so recent termination that I had was, I think I handled it much better, and I smoothly transitioned to a new job in a matter of weeks. But I was fired. I got canned uh, back in 2008. This experience was a little bit difficult, a little bit different. I lost my job in 2008, right as the financial crisis was sort of beginning. And it wasn't long before uh, months had passed. And then before I know it, a year had passed. 
and it was it was a bad situation like i was at a point where i was really willing to consider anything and so my my last role was you know sort of a professional role it was like an implementation consultant and i was applying to every level of job that i thought i might be qualified for or even some that i might be considered underqualified for there was nothing i was too good for but it was just you know if, if you go back to the you know 2009 2010 there was situations where people were living in tents and professionals that were you know before they had huge houses and bmws they were they were living out of their car they were living in tents it was it was a rough situation so around i was actually unemployed for over 2 years but around 2010 i randomly met a guy that had just got back from teaching english overseas in asia and so i thought you know i i really want to do something with my time and i ended up deciding to go overseas to taiwan to teach english and it was you know i'd never been overseas to asia so this was really you know taking a risk i had no idea what to expect i went there with the mindset of just sort of thinking you know if this doesn't turn out great what i can do is i could i could just you know make it a two week vacation and come back and chalk it up to being a great experience but long story short i went there and it was it is amazing experience like you see another culture and i think from a fire perspective i think teaching english can be a great way to sort of do like you hear about like the lean fire or barista fire type situation where people are they're close to there but they're not quite there if you're getting to the point where you feel like you can't stick it out in an office anymore there's a lot of things about teaching english overseas that is actually pretty conducive to kicking off financial independence. And I'll give you an example. I think any job that you take, I think you can sort of value what a job will do for you in terms of cash flow. And what I mean is like you can imagine, you know, someone might have a job that let's say it has a great fantastic salary. Let's say you're getting paid like $10,000 a month. But if to do this job you've got it's required that you live in a really high cost of living area and it, you know bottom line your expenses are $9,000 a month you would say that your the value of this job is like $1,000 a month i think that's for you know a lot of middle class people that's sort of a savings rate that some people could achieve like maybe somewhere around $1,000 a month i was surprised that when i went overseas to teach english the pay was roughly around $20 an hour the schedule was pretty easy compared to american perspective it's like 20 hours a week or so. And so that ends up equating to like roughly $1600 a month, which isn't a ton of money compared to your typical middle-class American jobs, but the schedule was much less and the cost of living, yeah, you know, depending on what you find can be pretty impressive. Like the first place that I went, they actually provided free room and board. And so this was fantastic. I mean, I was paying for just like utilities that amounted to like roughly $30 a month. but between the low cost of living and uh, you know for food and no housing costs it wasn't impossible to save about $1000 a month so from that perspective this here's this job that's overseas where you can totally leverage geo arbitrage you can keep your cost of living quite low travel around all a lot of parts of asia is, is very cheap it allowed you to save about the same amount from a middle class job but also have an extra 20 hours in your week so now at that time i wasn't quite as knowledgeable about freelancing i if i could go back in time i definitely would have started a blog around 2010 but it still gave me an opportunity to have more time and i and i think you know i'm actually going to potentially do the geo arbitrage again fairly soon because i'm at the point now where i'm 
approaching, I guess you might say like lean fire, like I've got a fair amount of side income that I could probably sustain myself as long as I'm doing freelancing. So this this blog is just one of the avenues that I have to make a little bit of extra money. All right, Rob, I didn't want to interrupt you during that tangent because you just dropped so much knowledge. And I mean, you pretty much shared your whole 2008 through your... So how long were you in Taiwan for? Yeah, so I was in Taiwan for about three years. It was it actually wasn't a straight three years. It was it was about a year and a half, and then I came back for six months and tried to get back in the job market without much luck, and then headed back again. And so I, I came back in 2014 after the job market had really picked up, and you know in 2014 uh, luck kind of shined on me, and I found myself working again. And I yeah I did really go off on a tangent. So let me let me try to jump back. I guess if we can to the list of things to do in the checklist. Yeah, so one thing I want to jump back into, I, I had a bunch sure. of notes going while you were going off because <laughs> you covered five years of your life in five minutes. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the first thing I want to address is just what did 2008 to 2010 look like? So I know you were unemployed. So were you just collecting unemployment and applying to hundreds of different jobs or what was the situation? Yeah, good question. 2008 to 2010, it was, I don't know, anyone that has ever been unemployed, they know what it's like to have to deal with Monster.com and CareerBuilder and all the sites where you do the job search. And there was a lot of frustration. I mean, there was good and bad to being unemployed. So, I, I mean, some of the frustration was dealing with having to go apply to jobs. I would dedicate at least two days a week to pretty much spending like five or six hours in a coffee shop applying to jobs. And eventually, you hit a point where it's the same jobs, like you're applying to the same jobs over and over again. So you can only do it so many times and you start expanding what your net as far as what you would accept for a job and you're applying to all different types of sites and different jobs, but eventually you kind of run out. And so that was frustrating. And I started looking at, you know, different types of positions like local stuff. I was in the city of Chicago and so I, you know, I started looking at bars in restaurants, but really just wasn't having any luck. And I think that I may have been pigeonholed because my previous role was like a consulting role. And I don't know how that looked on a job application if you were trying to apply for retail level positions. But there's a good side to it too, though, is and that's being unemployed. It kind of puts you in like a preview of fire situation. So for one thing, the two years between 2008 and 2010, I was in the best shape of my life because I, you know, a lot of people will make the excuse that it's hard to get to the gym when you work a 40-hour week and you're, you know, we're busy. Although I believe you should try to, even regardless of working. But at this point in time, because I had so much free time, I was dedicated to getting to the gym, you know, at least an hour a day. It was the best shape of my life, and so it's kind of, you know, it was, you know, you also have time to prepare your meals, so there's no excuse to eat fast food. So, you know, I, I really look at it now in retrospect is being sort of a preview to how financial independence can be, like how much better your life can be when you have that free time. Well, I have to say that's an extremely optimistic outlook. And optimism is a skill we could probably all work on. But I want to jump back to 2010 and Taiwan again, because I want you to walk us through some of the details, such as how you found this job, the visa hurdles, applying, just all those in and outs. Yeah, good question. And so what happened is, you know, I randomly met a guy that had just got back from overseas and he told me about, I think he taught somewhere in Southeast Asia. And so I just got the general idea somewhere in Asia and I did a fair amount of research and my research had sort of came to like two or three places that seemed like a good idea. Japan sounded interesting. They have a program called like the JET program, but I believe that 
the, to go through the program properly, it was going to take maybe, it might have taken 10 months to a year or something like that. And I was, I was anxious to get out there. Two other countries that I really considered were basically China and Taiwan. And I actually leaned pretty heavily towards a position in China. But then my research had sort of, some of the things I had read had made me think, ah, I wasn't sure about the specific school that I was looking at because I read sort of a horror story about the water not being so great in the place like for their shower. But the school that I ended up getting a position with, I researched about them. They had a great reputation and I went with them. But yeah, as far as how I found them, there are, are different resources on the internet where you can look for positions teaching English. One that was fairly prominent, if I remember I don't know if it's still out there, but it was called like Dave's ESL Cafe. I found the the process of applying for jobs as an English teacher to be much easier and more streamlined than your typical application process in the U.S. Like in the U.S., I think anyone that's looked for jobs, like you know the pain of like, so first of all, you, you click apply and then what happens? You get sent off to another website and then you have to register and create a username and a password and there's all these requirements on the password and fill out all the information that's already in your resume. Uh, when you're applying for the jobs for teaching English, it really was just as simple as, as clicking apply, writing a letter, uh, you know, or just a short note of why you want the position, attaching your resume, and that was it. There wasn't, they didn't deal with a lot of the uh, Taleo-type situation where you have to populate a database with everything. So I found it to be pretty easy to apply. For the specific school that I went with, they did set up like a Skype interview, and they had you do a teaching demo of, of how you might teach a class. And it was, you know, probably just a 20-minute interview or so. They, they also were very friendly, wasn't terribly intimidating. And I'll let you in on a little bit of a secret, and that's that the requirements to teach English aren't terribly harsh. Like, it's generally what will get you there is speaking English with a sort of American accent and having a college degree. Those are sort of the main things that they're looking for. That being said, like teaching English, it's in a lot of ways, it, it's you're kind of there. I mean, I'll say that I had a, a friend that his view of things was that it, it's a little bit like you're kind of almost there for entertainment. Like you're there to give the kids exposure to the American accent, to a legitimate American accent. And you're teaching a little bit and you're also there to make sure the kids have fun. But but for the most part, it's not high academia there. Now, could this college degree be in anything? And I'm still curious about the visa situation. We'll be right back after a quick word from one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor is one I use on a daily basis at my company, Gold City Ventures. That is the sound of a sale in your Shopify store. But did you know that Shopify now also powers in-person selling? Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store or small business. Accept payments, manage inventory, they have everything. Shopify brings together your in-person and online sales business into one source of truth, one dashboard, everything in one place. You know exactly what's going on. And now they have all these customization options. They have plug-and-play tools that you can integrate with Instagram or TikTok or wherever. You can take your payments by phone or by tablet. Shopify makes it easy. Plus, if you have any questions, their support team is there to help you. I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs in this audience, and Shopify POS just breaks down that barrier to accepting payments with your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash fyshow, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash fyshow to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash fyshow. Now back to the show. 
No, you just you really needed just a bachelor's degree from like any college, and it didn't have to be in any specific major. Like they they just were looking for a bachelor's degree and a passport. And yeah, to answer the other question, when I went there, they sort of walked me through the process to get a tourist visa. I think there's different ways that you can do it, and it's going to depend on the country that you go to. But generally, you're going to like go to either go online or go to the consulate that's you know your your local I don't know if it's consulate or embassy I guess uh, maybe it's embassy but you're going to go to if you're in a city where they where the country has representation you can go there and typically get a tourism visa so for for my example I got a tourism visa that I think was good for 60 days multiple entry and when you get there you start working and they they work with the government to get it converted to a work visa which gives you I think typically it's like one year residency and then you can you can enter and exit with that visa. Cool. Because, yeah, because that's definitely stuff that I didn't know before five minutes ago. So someone else who wanted to maybe step into this job, maybe they're sick of the American life and they want to cut their expenses down. But the financial nerd in me wants to ask, what exactly are the differentials between the prices? Like I know Thailand, which is different than Taiwan – is like astronomically cheaper than the U.S. Like we're talking 10% of what U.S. cost of living is. Is that similar with Taiwan? And is that something you took into consideration when you chose that? Um, yeah, definitely the lower cost is something I took into consideration. Taiwan is believed considered to be first world. There's like, what is it? They think they say the five tigers of Asia, which is let's see if I, China, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, I think. I think that's it. Might be Singapore, maybe, isn't it? But Taiwan is a little bit more expensive than Thailand, to, to my understanding. But, you know, let's talk real numbers as far as what I actually experienced. So after my first year, I did move out into the city of Taipei, and I got, like, an actual apartment. And so my first apartment was a really nice studio in a fancy area of Taipei called Xinyi. And the price was, if I remember right, it was, like, 13,000 NT which translates to a little bit over 300 US. So I think we're talking about maybe 350 to you know yeah 350 400 max US. So definitely affordable and you know it came with great fantastic fast internet. It was right near a lot of popular places that people would want to go hang out for as far as shopping and eating and and nightlife. Uh, so really good price and Taiwan, I mean, every country is going to be different, but Taiwan is is a very scooter-driven, as far as transportation goes, it's, it's scooters are the way to get around, so that you definitely didn't have much in terms of your transportation expenses. So my first year there, I had a scooter, and I, I paid probably 3 or $4 a week to keep it filled up. When I moved to the city, Taipei, I ditched the scooter because they're a little bit dangerous. I mean, you hear about accidents happening, but once I was in the city, it was pretty much public transportation. Like they've got a fantastic subway system to get around. Getting a subway, let's see, I think you would probably pay around, you know, 50 cents to $2 depending on where you're going. So so transportation was cheap. The biggest cost savings that, that I saw that was just like mind-blowing was medical care compared to the U.S. Now, one of the experiences that happened, uh, this is a, a whole other story, but I did end up, it's a very safe country, but I did end up in at one point having a bit of an incident. I was sort of hanging out with a couple of friends and someone, kind of random guy came by and punched her car. And I, I kind of said something just like, hey, what are you doing? 
And before I know it, I ended up getting popped in the mouth. This was one late night. And this ended up being a trip to the emergency room. And I got stitches late at night. It was like probably two in the morning or so. Now, going to the ER and getting stitches in America, I'm going to take a guess that you're going to probably have like a $2,000 hospital bill for that if you don't have insurance. At this point, I had insurance, but it was like newly activated, so I didn't even use it. I walked out, went to the billing area, and the cost for stitches, seeing a doctor, getting the anesthesia to not have the pain when they're doing it, and they gave me Band-Aids and ointment, and the cost was like $30 U.S., and then and the woman told me, she said, you know, you can file with the insurance company to get like this partially reimbursed. And I, I just felt like that's okay. That's fine. <laughs> I, I feel fine. $30 is more, you know, definitely good price. Wow. That's absolutely insane. Do they have like a universal healthcare system over there or what is their health insurance like? Yeah. For Taiwan, it is a national healthcare system there. And I've, I've heard that part of the reason they're able to do that is it's, it's sort of relatively small. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm not sure what the population is. It's several million, but I mean, it's a relatively small place. So it might be more difficult to do something like that in the U.S., but it was definitely a great healthcare system. Wow. And so I just want to get more into the numbers. So you said you were making around 20 bucks an hour. I don't know if it was 40 hours a week. I'm just doing a rough math right here. So that's 800 bucks a week. Let's call it 50 weeks a year. Well, let me jump in. It's actually, it was, it was a relatively easy schedule. Like the typical schedule of an English teacher is like around 20 to 25 hours a week. Okay. So yeah. at, at that math, you're making like 20 to 25 grand pre-tax, but it sounds like your cost of living is like 500 bucks a month. So what was your savings rate like at that point? Well, I did a lot of travel, so I, I blew through a lot of money, but I, I mean, I can, I can tell you what's possible. Like I met more frugal-minded people that were able to save around a thousand or more. So there, there's other opportunities. So because you're in a situation where you're teaching about 20 hours a week, and, and as far as the hours go, this is usually in the late afternoon to evenings, at least in Taiwan, it freed up your day and a lot of your time to do other stuff. So people would, people would do tutoring and you could earn about the same or sometimes higher if you've got, if you sort of establish yourself and you have a good reputation. Some people would make about $30 an hour tutoring on the side. And yeah, as far as the cost of living, I'd put it a little bit higher than 500. Maybe not initially for my first year because I did get that free room and board. Like you probably could get by with around maybe $600 a month. I think if you're having to pay for an apartment, it's probably closer to maybe $1,500 a month or so. But you know, great opportunity to do what you can on the side. And so there are some other potential income streams that happen when you are traveling and you've got that much free time. So you would hear funny stories about gigs that people would get. So like anything in the tourism industry was something that could happen. Like, so there, there were people that could teach like scuba diving. That was one way that people would make money on the side. And another kind of funny one is, so as an American walking around in an Asian country, you, you stick out a little bit and it's, you kind of realize how diverse the U.S. is when you go to a place that is much more homogenous. So you stick out. You're a little bit exotic being someone from America. And as such, there's sort of opportunities for, I'll tell you what happened to me. This is kind of funny to say, but I was actually approached to potentially be an actor in sort of a, a short, it was a, a tourism 
commercial that was going to air before a movie. And so <laughs> I ended, yeah, I ended up, and I, it's funny because you'll, you'll see people that are, that are like, I'm a model in Asia and they're actually like just very regular looking people. And I'm certain, <laughs> I'm certainly regular looking at best, but yeah, I was approached and I had sort of a, uh, you know, like a trial where I met with the director. It was very casual. It was just like at a coffee shop. I ended up not getting it because I had like no sleep the night before. I didn't do too well. But it, but just to say like for your average person, something like that is possible. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Approach to be a famous actor. Yeah, yeah. And that same thought of sticking out and just not maybe fitting in, did you really have to learn any of the local language or were you able to escape by just English? Um, so the primary language in Taiwan, Taiwan's an island off the coast of China. The primary language is actually Chinese, but then there also is a Taiwanese language, which is kind of more something that the aboriginal Chinese people speak. But that being said, I learned just a little bit of survival Chinese. It's a challenging language to learn because there's complexities to it. Like there's the language is tonal. There's like five different tones, which changes the meaning of the word. And initially, like a lot of my studying was focused on like the mainland China Chinese. And so, so the Taiwanese dialect would sometimes speak differently, like there, certain things would be different. And so like whenever I tried to use what I learned from the book, like it was often wrong. And actually, it, it's kind of a, a funny quirk that sometimes people, if, if you are not Chinese or Taiwanese and you're speaking Chinese, some people didn't really want to hear it. They kind of, they would just only speak to you in English. Even if, even people that had been learning Chinese for like many years and spoke it fluently, like, I don't know, just kind of a funny quirk there. But but yeah, to answer your question, I, I know just enough I can order McDonald's in Chinese if I have to. That's really good insight because there's a lot of opportunity for someone, especially from America, to go and live somewhere different and a place that's also really nice and safe and clean and do so at around $18,000 per year. But a lot of people, you know, they might have that belief that they can't do it because they can only speak English and they can't speak the local language. But you're just a perfect example that that's not true. Yeah, it's it's sort of common, actually. And it's a little bit of an embarrassment. Like, I, I wish that I had learned better Chinese. I can count to 10, um, but I can, <laughs> I can say a few things. But yeah, I, I wish I had learned better. But it's, it's surprisingly, every country is not going to be this way. But like, at least Taiwan, it's surprisingly easy to get by without knowing more than just the basics. And so some of the other countries that you teach English in, I don't know how, if it might be more difficult. Like, so I, I did get the opportunity to travel throughout Asia and some countries are harder than others. Like I remember Japan was a little bit more difficult. It seemed like not knowing Japanese was more of a hindrance to getting around. Like some countries in Taiwan, a lot of the people that were under 40, I think have a basic command of English. So that was very helpful. And there's a lot of English signs everywhere, but one of the things, you know, it is, I hear what you're saying as far as it being a limiting belief, but as someone that speaks English, it's kind of a, it's a powerful language to know. Like, it's kind of the language of travel. Like, if you, I believe that all the airports of the world have English signage. So, being able to speak English really frees you up to travel to a lot of places. And I can maybe put it out there. I've got a good resource from the second time I came back, I, I learned, I, I was certified for TEFL, which is, it's not really a requirement, but it's, it's helpful to, you know, maybe make a little bit more. But the place that I went that did the certification, they have a resource out there that breaks it down for all the different countries that you might want to go teach. And it breaks out what the average pay is and the average cost of living and the requirements to, to go to that country. And it's unbelievable 
the number of countries that are available that you can go teach as as an English speaker. So that's a good resource to check out for anyone that's interested in teaching English. Awesome. Well, yeah, I'll definitely link to that in the show notes because that sounds awesome for someone who's who wants to go down the same path. Yeah. So this well, this was a school that will prep people for teaching English and it'll also give them a certificate which might help them out. It's a it's a place called International TEFL Academy. That's the website, International TEFL Academy. And te- how do you spell TEFL? Oh, yeah, T-E-F-L, International T-E-F-L Academy. Kind of a long URL. But yeah, what they'll do is it was a class that ran, I think it was about six weeks or so, and it does it does prep you well to go overseas. But just the, it's, it's a free resource, I think, if you go to their website. You can find they have like a, a big matrix that you can download of all the different countries and just the requirements to go teach there. It's, it's a really good resource. Awesome. Yeah, that's definitely going to be helpful for people. So yeah, is there anything else that we haven't really touched on that you'd like to get into a little bit? Sure. I guess I'll say I would maybe touch on... Okay, so the first time that I lost my job and I was overseas, I was pretty ignorant about the opportunities that exist to like freelance. And so now, if I were put back in the situation that I was in for 2008 when I was unemployed for two years and not working, I would definitely try to explore freelancing more and just doing gig type work. So, you know, some of the things that I would touch on are like, I mean, these are tools that exist now, but sites like Upwork or Fiverr, sort of the gig economy where there's, there's different things you can do to make money in it. It takes some initial grinding, but if you work hard, you can start earning money on there. So like I've done some English tutoring on the side on like Fiverr. I've done some work on Upwork, like, you know, web design and this kind of stuff. So, you know, these types of things. Another one, if you want to do tutoring, there's a site called Wiseant that's tutoring. And there's, there's some people that are billing at pretty high hourly rates. I've seen people that go like $80 an hour for tutoring. So if you've got a skill set, it's, it's a good way to make money. Awesome. Yeah, those are definitely some great resources. I've hired and done some work on a few of those before. So mm, Yeah, cool. Yeah, the sharing economy is pretty crazy. And like I said before, if you can start earning in American dollars but live in, say, Taiwan, you can just crush your savings rate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I guess another thing I'll say that I wanted to bring up is to anybody that's working now, it might be helpful. You know, the, the job market is good now, but it might be a good sort of mental exercise to consider. What would you do if you lost your job, if your income was shut off tomorrow? Uh, and this is sort of relevant to savings. Like the other day, I have a buddy who's who's trying to get more into investing and knock out some debt. And But he also likes to live well. And I know there's a balance between living well and, and saving. But I asked him, I said, you know, if you lost your job, how would your spending habits change? Oh, well, I probably would stop buying this, this, and this. And it's like, well, they're they're not really necessary. And I think if you're dedicated to getting to financial independence, it's probably worth it to kind of operate with that mindset, at least for a while, to get to achieve some goals and get to a point where, you know, once you've got a stash built and you can start enjoying like, you know, dividends and exponential growth, like it's a powerful position to be in. So I would I think I would sort of challenge the listeners to just consider it could happen, you know, you could lose your job, your income could be cut off. And so consider how you would how you would handle that. So in terms of savings rate, in terms of what are your expenses that are truly necessary, and in terms of what are other income streams that you might be able to generate or use. So like that, I think this is a, is a major thing for me is create more than one income stream. I, I don't think it's in this day and age, it's not a good idea to rely solely on an employer because they can cut your income off. And another thing, this is, I guess, sort of a 
a saying that I sort of made up, or I guess a mantra, you might say. And that's, I don't want to let one person be in control of my success. And I think when you have a typical job at a company, you've usually got a boss, and there might be a few other people that are, you know, sort of observing your work. But ultimately, it's it's one or two or three people that are going to sort of make a judgment about you that, you know, you might pass the mustard and, and be good enough to grow and, and get great promotions, or you might not impress them. And if that's the case, you might not be successful. And so I don't, I think, don't give any one person that much power to be the person that can decide if you're successful or not. You've got to do your own thing on the side, like do gigs, do freelancing, do stuff like creating web pages and do podcasts and this kind of stuff. Like, I think it's the right move in life. Well, there's the actionable tip of the episode. Act like you're going to get fired tomorrow and figure out what you're going to do to make money. <laughs> right. And then the, then the bonus will be that because you're not getting fired, hey, you've got all this extra income, so maybe invest it in your business. <laughs> cool. And I really like that quote, I don't want to let one person be in control of my success. That's just a, such a powerful idea. Thank you. Appreciate it. Rob, this has been a great interview and a truly unique one. So I want to say thank you for coming on to the show today. But if people want to follow up on your story and reach out to you, where would be the best place for them to do that? People can hit me up on my site. So I've got my site, gettingcanned.com, and you can reach me at my email, which is admin at gettingcanned. And yeah, I'll put it out there. If anyone is looking for ideas for freelancing or if they've got something that they've started up and they need a little bit of help, I'm happy to contribute. And I also have a friend that's pretty knowledgeable about marketing. So, so um, yeah, I could potentially help. Awesome. So this next question is the wild card question. You did not prepare for it. I did not prepare for it. I'm just going to hit you with it. Do you think you're ready? I'll, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. If you could go back to any era in time, you cannot choose the present day. That's cheating. What would it be? Oh, that's tough. I guess the first thing that pops into my mind is I think the 60s might be a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> there was a lot of, I mean, it was a, a pivotal time as far as culture and, you know, free love might have been fun. And there was good music coming out of there too. <laughs> awesome. All right, Rob. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. You definitely dropped a lot of knowledge in the listeners. So maybe now they won't be so scared of unemployment and they'll diversify and get a few more income streams. So thanks again for coming on. This episode has been great. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate giving me the opportunity to come on and say my piece and keep up the good work, guys. Wow, that was an interesting episode. Definitely much different than anyone we've ever seen. I've never heard a guy being so optimistic about being fired. Yeah, I mean, he's just super inspirational because I'm thinking from my own story, like worst case scenario, I just move somewhere like Taiwan or Thailand or any of these cheap Southeastern Asian countries. And Rob made it seem like it's not that hard to navigate. He's an English speaking guy. He said he can barely order McDonald's in Chinese, but he's getting around. He lived there for two years and then he went back and did another stint. So just super inspirational and showing us that there's so many more options than we might think were available. Yeah, and it's not like he had to move somewhere that had low cost of living, but he was living in like a, a dirty hut. You know, he mentioned living in a nice apartment in a new developed area, and it also didn't come with a ton of prerequisites. He's like, hey, can you speak English? Do you have a college degree? Well, then you're qualified. Yeah, it seems like a pretty good program to check out if you want to go international, if you'd like... If you're sick of the corporate life and you don't have that much saved up, go to one of these countries. You could probably, quote unquote, fire there for like $300,000 or less if you really want to do that low cost of living lifestyle for the rest of your life. So it's just an option to consider. And it's not like Taiwan or Asia is your only option. I mean, he mentioned, you know, resources out there that can show you places all over the world. 
you may have to give up some on the income in certain locations, but if there's a spot that you've really always wanted to visit and kind of immerse yourself in, this is a great way to do it, but let it pay for itself. Whoa, what was that, Justin? Must be a call to action. So today's call to action is imagine you're fired tomorrow. What are you going to do? What does your life look like? Do you have an emergency fund saved up? And something that Rob showed us is that we have so many more options than we could possibly imagine. Maybe you don't have a huge nest egg or emergency fund saved up. You can go move to one of these low-cost living areas and go ride it out until the recession's over and come back. (laughs) I think sometimes we're just so blind and so pigeonholed in our society that we don't see all of these other options around us. So imagine getting fired tomorrow, make a game plan, and execute if it ever does happen. Well, if you enjoyed this episode as much as we did, and you want to get all those great resources like, you know, how do you figure out places that offer these kind of jobs where you can go teach English and these certifications that might help, go check out the show notes at thefyshow.com slash canned, and then continue in all our conversations on our Facebook page at thefyshow.com slash community. And as always, any of those five-star reviews are much appreciated. Toss them our way. See you on next week's episode of The Fi Show. Hey, real quick before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million, available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.